If you have your Bibles, please open them up to John chapter 18. If not, you can follow along on the screen there. But this is God's word in John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron. Keep that stored, the brook Hidron, that's going to be significant in just a moment. But when it says he spoke these words, hopefully we've been hovering around these chapters for long enough where you know what he's talking about, right? Starting in chapter 13, the discourse, the upper room discourse, he's been sharing with his disciples kind of the last words, some of the last words and message and teaching he wants to stay with them. But then last week, you know, the chapter 17 the prayer to his father. When he spoke these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. John here is the only one who really doesn't call it the Garden of Gethsemane, but we know that's what it is from the other accounts. There was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? Try to, for a moment, just imagine the scene here for a moment. We're told that this was a place where Jesus often met with his disciples, probably a place where he would meet with to teach them, to pray with them. I mean, you and I, we have those kind of places where we go with someone to do discipleship together. For some, some of us, it's Oliver Brown or, or Common Grounds Cafe in Hurstville, a place when you can go get into the Word and pray. Jesus and his disciples had this kind of place. And because they had this kind of place, they obviously did this in the Garden of Gethsemane together. together. Um, this was also, therefore, a place that Judas knew very well. And so Judas, having have been there many times before with Jesus, he knew this was probably the one place we would find Jesus at this particular moment of time. Now get this, though. Notice who else is with Judas. Who Judas brings along with him. It says that he brought a whole band of soldiers. Maybe your translation says a a cohort or a detachment of soldiers. And people, men, scholars much smarter than me have kind of looked into the original Greek word of what that word band is. And they come to various conclusions, so we just can't be sure. Anywhere from around 200 Roman soldiers to around 1,000 soldiers, fully armed, ready for war, there with Jesus. Let's go with the conservative number. The conservative number of around 200 Roman soldiers there, ready to arrest Jesus. And that's without counting the officers that um, we're told were there. Probably the temple police. right? You remember Jerusalem, a place where the faithful pilgrims from all over the world would come to worship in the temple for the various festivals. Festivals, there was police obviously there to monitor, to make sure that everyone was kept safe with thousands of thousands of people coming into Jerusalem at any given time. So you had these Romans, 
and these Jews working together. And just a quick interesting side note about that, the fact that we have these Romans and Jews working together. They hated each other. Jews and Romans didn't work together this way. They hated each other. But not on this one point. They worked together on this one point. It's interesting, last week we spoke about how the gospel unites us, unites people from all races and tongues and cultures and social classes, and it brings us all together. At the same time, we see here, it's also the hatred of Jesus and of Christianity that can bring people together as well. I mean, just look at the news for a moment. You know, what kind of what's going on, if, uh, the, the backlash that Israel Folau is receiving because of some of his Twitter comments about, you know, the Bible's views of, on homosexuality. The backlash was universal. You know, kind of brought people from all shapes and sizes together in their unite in their the unity united around the hatred of his Christian beliefs. The gospel unites, but at times, and you might find this at your workplace or at uni, people's animosity towards Christianity might very well unite them as well, and maybe even against you. Back to the story for a moment. Why so much force? Why so much military manpower for this one unarmed guy with 11 of his buddies? Well, probably, and we get a a hint of this if we follow along in John, probably they were fearing an uprising. Jesus had many followers. Crowds would follow him in the thousands So even though the Pharisees hated Jesus, they wanted him gone. But still, there's this kind of, man, we're not totally sure what this one guy is capable of. That's kind of what they're thinking. They'd heard the stories of his miracles. They'd heard the stories of his power. And as much as they they wanted to just brush it off as silly myths or legends, they couldn't. We can't. And so what do they do? They're careful. In case it all just happens to be true, he is this powerful. So get this. They're unsure of what he's capable of doing because of his power. You add to that the fact that crowds would follow him in the thousands. And we could add to that the fact that it is Passover. There are thousands of people gathered here in Jerusalem. So if there was... Even a little hint in Jesus' mind of wanting to stage some kind of military coup, right, and take over, this was the perfect moment to do it, but he doesn't. And this doesn't take away from their fear, though. I want to show you a slide back in chapter 11. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Can you see that? Maybe he is this powerful. We're unsure what he's capable of. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And they couldn't have that. They wouldn't have that. They couldn't let him take on any more followers. So there's only one option. We take this guy out. We take him out, and we take out all of his followers if necessary and by force. 
It seems like they'd come up with the perfect plan, doesn't it? Except, except it wasn't their plan at all. It wasn't their plan to have Jesus killed, really. See, this is the main point we're trying to make from these verses here. Notice what it says there in verse 4 again. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, what does he do? He comes forward. He shows resolve. He shows initiative. Knowing that, that this was the place that Judas knew he would find him. Knowing that just a few hours back, like trying to get a, in your imagination a scope of the timeline him, that, that upper room discourse, that conversation, it wasn't days or weeks ago, it was hours ago. Knowing that just a few hours back, back in the upper room over dinner, he had told Judas, you remember, what you're about to do, go do it now, quickly. He knew this. Knowing that his arrest here would lead to his death, knowing all that would happen to him, he nonetheless, he comes forward. And with that, he's telling them, I'm ready. I'm ready because I'm in control of the whole situation. This is exactly how the father had planned it. This is exactly how my father had planned it. Just the other day, uh, Samson, China, and myself, we're, uh, we were um, at, a, at a cafe talking about a whole bunch of things, as we, as we often do. And this particular day, our conversations went to gun laws, right? The question of whether or not individuals should be allowed to carry a gun or, or whether... Um, you know, do they make us safer or not? Or if, they, if everyone had a gun or a gun in their home, will that just make, us, make for a more unsafe community and society? On one side of the argument, it says, of course. You know, guns kill people. Because that's where the question was really, really went with all this. Who kills people? Is it guns or is it people? So on the one hand, of course, the argument says, it's guns who kill people. But the other side of the argument says, well, no, ultimately, it's, it's people who kill people. Guns are merely just the instrument used in killing people. Now, I was thinking about that conversation. I was just thinking, I wonder if you've ever thought about the death of Jesus in that way. So you've probably heard a discussion around, well, who was it who, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? You could make an argument that it was the Jews I mean, it was their plot and the Pharisees' plot to have him killed, so they killed Jesus. Or you could make the argument that it was the Romans. I mean, it was, it was a, a Roman cross that he hung on. Crucifixion was a Roman style of execution. He was killed by the Roman soldiers. Then we could take the spiritual approach, okay, which is legitimate as well, to say, you know, from a spiritual perspective, there's indications throughout the Bible that kind of support this. You know who killed Jesus? You did. And I did. Because our sin put him there on the cross. And in a sense, there's legitimacy to all of these arguments. But in the end, maybe you're not comfortable with this idea. But in the end, we need to acknowledge that God was ultimately the one responsible for Jesus' death. God the Father had Jesus, his son, killed. The Jews and the Romans... Merely instruments being used. But in the end, it was all part of God's plan from the beginning. For example, the Bible fleshes this out a little bit in Isaiah 53, where it says that God had planned the suffering and death of Jesus not to disown him, not to dishonor him or reject him, but to glorify him 
as the perfect, flawless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then on the other hand, you have the detractors, the people who can't fathom that God would do something like this. And they would say, yeah, well, okay, if indeed God is responsible for killing Jesus, you know what they would say? Well, then that means God is likened to some kind of cosmic child abuser, making his son go through something like that. But did Jesus see it that way? I think that's what we need to get to. Did Jesus see it that way? He didn't. He knew the mission and he chose to accept it. He loved us way too much to leave us in the dark. He knew what it would take to make you and me right with God. He knew what it would take. And you know what it would take? A blood sacrifice. A blood sacrifice. And he knew that. Another small detail from back in verse 1, but it's also massively significant. You see, it says back in verse 1 that they had to, in order to get to Gethsemane, they had to cross the brook Kidron, or the, the Kidron Brook, also known as the Kidron, really just a small stream of, of water that ran through the city there. And you know, a sobering reality must have come over Jesus when he crossed that little brook. You know why? Up in the temple ground, remember the context now, the time of year, it's Passover. And up in the temple ground, through that day and through on to the next day, there was a massacre of lambs taking place. All the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. Their blood was running down the altar like a river. It would run into the channels. Those channels would take the blood down the backside of the temple mount, down the temple slope, and down into this same Kidron brook. That little brook in that moment would have been bright red with blood. We don't know how many lambs were slaughtered and massacred in that particular Passover. But we do get some history and some information of a census that took place 30 years after this Passover. And the census was of how many lambs were slaughtered in that particular Passover 30 years later. Any guesses of how many lambs were slaughtered during Passover? Any guesses? Rand, anyone? 5,000? It's a very conservative number. Okay, now we're just getting carried away. Okay, Amelia. I'll meet you a quarter of the way. 256,000 lambs. How's that for a barbie? I was talking, you know, uh, we were talking about James chasing sheep the other day and how he likes his lambs on a barbecue. 256,000 lambs. It was a bloodbath. An absolute bloodbath. You can imagine what the temple courts were like with the blood of all those lambs flowing down the altar, down through the channels, down the back, and into the Kidron. And there's Jesus stepping across all that blood that cannot take away the sin of the world. And he's crossing that brook in order to himself be offered as the only sacrifice who can. 
Surely his own sacrifice, it just would have been vividly on his mind in that very moment, the bloodbath that he would have to endure out of love to make you and I right with God. Jesus isn't taken by surprise here in the garden. It's not a matter of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's in complete control. Because as we'll see with our second point in just a moment, as part of the Godhead, as God himself, this was part of his plan also right from the beginning. Let's look at really quickly at the second point. His claim to deity. His claim to deity. Continuing on in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. The claims that Jesus made, they can't be ignored. They're, not, they're definitely not ignored here in this situation. It's hard to miss really what's going on um, because I'm not blaming our English Bibles. I mean, we, they're, they're fantastic. But because of the English and the way it's, it's been translated, where it reads, I am he, that he actually isn't, isn't there in the original. Interesting fact, or well, I find it interesting anyway, um, the, the Greek was the language of the time back then, right? And so most people who had access to a Bible, and the Bible back then was really just the Old Testament, they had access and a copy of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you've ever heard the word Septuagint being thrown around, that really is just one of those versions, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Why is this significant? Well, um, for example, the Apostle Paul, later when he writes and he quotes Scripture, He's quoting from um, one of these Greek translations of the Old Testament. We know the Old Testament was originally Hebrew, but throughout time they had access to it in Greek. So therefore, when Jews and Pharisees and religious leaders would read, for example, Exodus, and you know what happens, what account we find in Exodus, God talking to Moses, the burning bush, you know, Moses is like, well, who do I tell the people that your, your name is? And what does he say? Tell them that I am. That's the name that he's going to be known by. I am. Just I, the one who always was and who always will be, I, I just am. The one at the very core and center of all things. It's, it's me. I am. Tell them that's my name. And... Those who had a Greek version of the Old Testament, when they came into um, Exodus, they would read these words in Greek, ego eimi, I am. Which is the exact same words that Jesus uses to identify himself here. I am, the I am. And with that, elevates himself to the status of God. He declares his deity. And with that powerful declaration, I love this, all the authorities and the powers who were there literally 
fall backwards at the power of his name. I couldn't help think of, uh, Toby shows me these YouTube videos of like, they, they say something and like all the friends kind of fall backwards, you know, those kind of videos. Is that what's going on? They're just blown away by what they've just seen. The whole, not 15 of them, of their mate, 200 plus, maybe almost 1,000 of them just blown away. You kind of read some, some of the different commentators who try to, to explain away what's really going on here. And the most ridiculous one I heard, at least, is what one of the soldiers just happened to fall over and like a domino effect, they all happened to fall. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in light of it being the only appropriate response to being in the presence of God, to fall flat on our face in awe. Hundreds of armed soldiers ready for war. This one unarmed man, he speaks the name of God and they collapse. What more proof do they need? That Jesus was in control. That he truly was who he claimed to be. And yet... It seems like this, they, this wasn't convincing enough for them. And here's what I, found, I find fascinating about this story, and we're starting to wrap up and think about this a bit more practically now. Just because someone has a personal encounter with the power of Christ, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to respond in a positive way, does it? We see that with these soldiers. There's no other explanation for them falling back to the ground like that. They responded in the only appropriate way that we can. And yet, there's no indication at all that in that moment they dropped their swords, they left their weapons to follow Jesus. But maybe they didn't follow Jesus in that moment, but, but there's one thing they couldn't do. They couldn't ignore his claims. Because they'd not only heard those claims... They were overpowered by those claims. A couple of points of applications is to end. Firstly, to do with these soldiers. Maybe there are some here this morning who are like those soldiers. You've seen and experienced Jesus' power firsthand. There's something in you who just knows his claims are true. You've seen his power to transform people in your own life, maybe. But you keep refusing to put down your swords and weapons, allowing yourself to be disarmed and vulnerable in order to follow Jesus. The good news is you don't need to make that same mistake the soldiers did. Instead of sending Jesus to his death like the soldiers, why don't you this morning receive his blood sacrifice as a gift for the washing, for the forgiveness of your sins that he did for you? I'm talking to you this morning. That's who I'm wanting to, to talk to that he did for you out of love. Secondly, this was perhaps the most agonizing night of Jesus' whole life. And notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't escape it. He doesn't run away. Instead, what does he do? He walks into it straight, head on. And you know, as followers of Jesus, we're often going to find ourselves in these difficult these tense situations, probably never as difficult as what Jesus is facing in this moment, but difficult enough to where, you know what, your response, you'll be tempted to do, run, escape, be isolated, perhaps get mad and angry in that moment like Peter does, which we're going to see later on. Maybe even the response is to, to give up on God altogether 
instead of seeing that situation that he has you in as a necessary part of God's plan for you in that moment, as it was for Jesus, a necessary part of his plan to the cross, a necessary part of God wanting us to journey towards Christ. He doesn't run. He doesn't hide. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't give up. He actually shows initiative. He leans into the difficult situation he's facing because he knows why he's there. He knows who's with him all the way. And I think maybe that's an encouragement some of us need to hear this morning. Whatever struggles, whatever difficult situations life is going to throw at you. This morning, you just did a bit of reminder why you're there. God's in it. And he's with you all the way. Lastly, A word about betrayal. See, we haven't said much about Judas in this whole scenario, have we? But he's crucial to the story. And I'm wondering, in that moment, what is Judas feeling? What is Judas thinking when he sees these 200 soldiers fall at the name of Jesus? See, Judas was Jesus' friend. Judas had followed him for three years. When you followed a rabbi in this culture, this wasn't like, hey, I just showed up to one of his classes one week. This wasn't, hey, I just showed up to church one week. And you you literally did life with this guy. You hung on his every word. You served him the best you could. You would go out and buy food for him. Why? Because you wanted to be like him. This, This is how close they were. But for a handful of money, he sells Jesus out, betrays him. See, Jesus knew what it was like to have close relationships break down. We often think, oh, because he's the son of God, he can't relate to us. No. He knows. He knew what it was like, serious, close relationships to break down. And I don't know, I was thinking about this, how you've walked in this morning, what kind of relationships you've experienced in the past. My guess is that in one form or another, we've all experienced betrayal in some form. Maybe you know what it's like to be cheated on. Maybe you know what it's like to have someone break a promise to you. Maybe you know what it's like to to have, and this is my guess that most of us here, someone somewhere along the the path of your life has said they would do something and they didn't, has said they wouldn't do something but they did. And if that hasn't happened to you, what I'm talking is, you know, it's like, I don't know, I'm too young. You just live long enough and you will experience this kind of betrayal or you will be the betrayer. See, it's easy, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, I know what it's like for someone to do that to me. It's not so easy to admit, hey, I, I do that to others in my relationships. See, whenever you put two broken people together, it doesn't matter what the relationship is, it's going to get messy. Friendships. Marriages, parents and their kids. When you put proud, sinful, broken people, it will get messy. We all know what it's like to be betrayed. We all know what it's like to be the betrayer. But here's the thing. Here's the the timeless idea I think that we can take from this. See, if you're going to be in in our preaching class later, this is what we're going to be talking about this morning. Because he was and is the son of God. And he does do this powerful act of speaking his name, right? Of showing his nature and his character in that moment. And that blew people away. 
And so there's a very real sense that we cannot do this in the very same way that Jesus does. But there is this timeless idea that I think God wants to speak to each one of us through this. See, it's right in the moment of Jesus' betrayal that he's going to step forward and he's going to declare, I am. They all hit the floor. Why? Because in that moment, in the midst of this messy, broken betrayal, they get a glimpse of the nature and the character of God. And there's a lesson here. There's a, there's a lesson here for us that can, has the power to transform all your relationships. As broken people, living amongst and relating to other broken people, if, even in moments of betrayal, the nature of God can be displayed. The name of God can be displayed. And here's the thing. You can be the one displaying it. How? Well, by rest initiating the restoration process, by initiating forgiveness, by loving that person despite what they deserve in the same way that despite knowing what we deserve, Jesus steps forward, allows himself to be taken. He shows the initiative and the resolve to love us despite what we deserve. Here's a challenge perhaps that we can take. This week, Many of you will go back into perhaps a hostile situation. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe you'll go back this week and go back into a hostile marriage, a relationship or a friend that is broken down. And in that situation, you have a choice. Like Judas, you can betray the name of Jesus or you can display the nature and the name of Jesus in a way that literally just knocks people off their feet. Imagine how powerful that could be. 